0: King Jesus, it is good to come together into your sanctuary today. Lord, may you open our hearts that we might hear from you. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. It is in your name that we pray all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. So yesterday, there was probably like 12 or 13 of us or so that came to the building for for our new building. We've uh, we've acquired a new building. Uh, We're very grateful and we love the community center. uh, But the Lord has also provided for us in a pretty miraculous, amazing way. Um, Yeah, and we had a a crew of folks there who are planting things, moving furniture, uh, throwing things into into a dumpster. It was a ton of fun. And other things that I loved about it is... A friend of mine uh, from the neighborhood was there. Uh, As as far as I know, he he doesn't uh, follow the Lord Jesus, um, but he was there and asking questions. Uh, There was an older gentleman who kind of came by and was asking questions was super encouraged to see so many people excited uh, about a building and uh, and then there was a a football team uh, across the way in the park who had come over and saw our sign of free stuff. Uh, they helped themselves to the big uh, Friends poster uh, that we had found somewhere in a storage room. But it was just such a fun reminder uh, that, that the Lord has given us this for the purpose of mission and for outreach to the community. Uh, it was just so much fun to be investing in this, not for our own sake, although, yes, I'm so glad for us to have a permanent home, but for the sake of the community, and that's wonderful. Uh, if you're a child here today... My drawing prompt for you, or if you are a a drawer, uh, my prompt for you today is to draw prayer. What does prayer look like? And maybe you want to draw like the physical act of prayer, or maybe you want to draw what actually happens in the heavenly realms during prayer. So that that would be my encouragement to you to draw prayer, uh, and then when you're done with that, please give it to either, um, to someone on staff, Uh, I think we've got a welcome thing at the t- yeah, we have, we have like a, a collection for drawings at the welcome table. Yes, okay, I'm not speaking nonsense. We, we move so much, I forget like what we actually have in the back and what, and what we uh, have, have swapped out for something else. So right now we are walking through uh, selected passages from the book of James, from the book of James. Especially where, what we're looking at is how does the book of James help us cultivate a Christ-centered culture here at Restoration? What, does it, what are uh, suggestions that, ha, that James has for us? And all along the way, James has not been holding back any punches. Uh, he's been very clear with us. He's, he's um, been telling us exactly what sort of things could creep our way that would unravel a healthy Christian community. We saw a couple of weeks ago the warning against hypocrisy. Our faith in Jesus ought to express itself in love towards others, especially the poor and the marginalized, the widows and the orphans. And then after that, we learned about the sin of of favoritism. And like a cancer, favoritism can corrode and deteriorate a church. We ought to be hospitable to all peoples, James encouraged us. And then last week, we learned about those selfish ambitions, those inner greed, uh, greedy thoughts, the the cravings that we all have within us, and how those can cause us to go at war with one another as believers, and how tragic that can be. Hypocrisy, favoritism, personal greed, and I don't know about you, but it's easy to, to hear these things and to feel very overwhelmed, very overwhelmed, and and discouraged. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I look within my own heart and I see these dark behaviors at work within me. And it feels like wounds that are sort of festering within my soul. Rather than walking uprightly, I'm ashamed to say that, that these passages remind me that so often I, I walk with a limp. I don't walk as uprightly as I would like. Well, today we're looking at the final passages from James' letter to his congregation. These are the final verses, Um, and then he's done. Uh, This this book ends at verse 20, and James doesn't end his letter the same way that other New Testament authors end their letters, full of these final greetings and, and well wishes to the community, words of doxology and praise, and then a final greeting. No, James doesn't end that way. He ends rather abruptly. So if you haven't yet, open up your Bibles or your order of service to look at James chapter 5, starting at verse 13, going all the way through 20. But here you'll see that that James in this section gives us some final instructions on prayer and for those who wander away from the truth. So why does James do this? Why does he end his letter so abruptly like this? Well, I think part of the answer is in the series of questions that we hear throughout this passage. James asks, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you cheerful? Is anyone among you sick? Are there, is there sin still among you? Is anyone among you wandering away from the faith? You see, after fi- several, several chapters and words and paragraphs of exposing the wounds that fester within our souls, wounds of hypocrisy, wounds of favoritism and greed, and many, many more things that we didn't cover in, in our preaching series. After this, I think that James, the younger brother of Jesus, now draws us together in this conclusion of his pastoral letter. And what he's doing is he's directing our gaze upwards towards the path of healing. He sees, he knows that we've been exposed to wounds, and now he shows us these, he gives us these words of healing today. You see, you might walk with a limp but you won't forever. You might be haunted haunted with, with um, hungry desires from within, but you won't be forever. You might feel estranged from loved ones and even separated from God himself, but you won't forever. God will heal you in mind, body, and spirit. So let's move through this passage in three different sections. So... I love in verse 13 when James starts off by saying, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Then sing your praises. Isn't it beautiful that from from sorrows to celebrations, whatever your life circumstance that you might be, the Bible tells you to bring those feelings here into church. We are to be a community of empathy where we, we celebrate with one another and we grieve with one another. As John Calvin said, there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. We have a God for all seasons, whether you are sorrowful or cheerful. Share your life with your brothers and your sisters, the scripture calls us to. And then he continues. He says, is anyone among you sick? Call for the elders of the church to pray for you. Now, elders, uh, that's not just old people uh, in the church, uh, wise people in the church, in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles, as they established new churches, they would uh, anoint new uh, elders over that. It was also a, a title of leadership. The Greek word for elder is presbyter, and, and as we trace the etymology of that word, it goes from presbyter to prestos to priest, and I, I know that our congregationalist brothers and sisters would disagree with that. Uh, the sacramental church would say this is, uh, this is a sign of the, the presbyter, the, the priest of the community. And in addition to preaching and teaching, leaders of the church would call or were called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ Himself and to pray for the sick. Now, in no way is James saying that only the elders should pray for the sick. No, we know through the Scriptures that we are all called to be a part of the household of prayer. All of God's children are to come before the Lord, shoulder to shoulder with one another, boldly bringing our sicknesses before him. But one should also be eager to invite the church's leaders to pray for you. Uh, one of the things, that I, and I don't mean to like shame anyone, but one of the things that sometimes breaks my heart is when I, when I hear that one of you has gone to the doctor and undergone a pretty serious surgery, and I didn't hear about it. It's like, oh, like I, I'm, I'm commanded to pray for you. Like, please let me know. So if there are serious things going on in your life, like please reach out to me. Like, I, I want to pray for you. Well, the elders, uh, the other thing that we see in this passage is it is the sick who is called or who is instructed to call upon the elders of the church, sort of implying that, that this kind of sickness that they are struggling with is something that, that keeps them from being able to go and attend the fellowship of the church. And I think one of the reasons why the elders are encouraged to pray for those is because the the elders have been authorized by the church to represent the church to those who are sick and wounded and hurting. It's a reminder to you, as you are confined in your home, that you belong to Christ and the church is there present with you. Now, what about that phrase, that curious phrase that we read in verse 15? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will rise him up. This is a bit of a problematic verse uh, throughout church history, is it not? Does this verse guarantee, does this verse promise that if you have faith, no matter what you ask for, you will be healed? Is that what it says? Or does it mean that if you have prayed for something in your life and you didn't receive the healing that you wanted, does that mean that you didn't have enough faith? No, I think when you're healthy and you're thinking clearly, you might be like, oh, no, no, surely there's, you know, that's, that's not what it means. But I think in our sickness, in our, in our sorrow, in our, in our truly um, just moments filled with despair, we ask this. We, we cry out to God. We say, please, heal us of this. And I, again, I don't know about yourself, but for me, sometimes when, when those prayers aren't answered, I'm like, man, am, do I, am I not exercising enough um, faith in this moment? Well, I think it's important to note that this phrase that James uses here, the prayer of faith, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that that phrase is ever used, prayer of faith. And faith, as you will recall from previous weeks, is a common recurring theme throughout the book of James. He clearly tells us about faith over and over again. He has been stressing again what the purpose of faith is. Faith directs our gaze beyond this world into the heavenly realms. Faith is what points us and directs us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is what stirs our hearts to love and trust Him more. Faith is what draws our allegiance under the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of all prayer is that one day God will in fact heal and restore all things. He will rise us all up in the perfect wholeness of perfect health. And so when James speaks about the prayer of faith, it's in this context. It's in this future focus, in this future gazing. So yes, God will answer your prayer. And perhaps it is now. Perhaps it is today. Prayer is one of those thin places in which heaven and earth meet. And every now and then, heaven breaks through into earth. And I've not experienced this personally, but I know that some of you have. Where you have had healings in your body. And you praise the Lord for that. But our prayers could also be answered in that future day. When we are all brought into the fullness of Jesus Christ. And all of our entire creation is made new. Perhaps that's the reason for our sickness is to stir our hearts towards these things. To remind us that even here and now, our our sickness and our sorrows, we're being told by our sickness, we're reminded that this is not right. Things are not as they should be. Perhaps our moments of sickness are moments for us to more deeply desire the kingdom of God. God will heal our bodies. Secondly, in verse 16, we read this. Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, typically, uh, in, in the Scriptures, we see that there are three different kinds of confession that take place. There's public confession. So if someone were to sin against the entire congregation, it would be very appropriate for them to stand up and confess that sin to the congregation. There's also private confession. When you sin against an individual, the Scriptures tell us to go to that person to express your sorrow to them. And if you're on the receiving end of that, we're commended to receive that that act of reconciliation with, with eagerness and hope and desire for healing. But then there's also secret confession, where those sins that we've committed secretly in our hearts that only God knows about, we are commended and told and instructed to confess those to the Lord. In our tradition, some have found it helpful to confess their sins sometimes to clergy, It's a way to name and to specifically voice the sorrows that you have, the sins that have been plaguing you. We don't require it in our tradition, but it has been helpful for many of you. It's a time in which we name the despair and the regret, but then we also hear the assurance of forgiveness from an officer of the church. Through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. You see, not only does God desire to heal our bodies, but he also desires to heal our soul's he wants our souls to be whole. I remember when I first started attending an Anglican church, and it was this weekly act of confession that was really jostling and jarring to me. Uh, I have a theory. Maybe, maybe it's just based on my own experience, but my theory is that when people start attending a liturgical church and the liturgy starts soaking down into your soul and your bones, I think that it's the prayer of confession that we first either intentionally or unintentionally, commit to memory because it just jostles us awake. We're forced in this moment of the week to reflect back and to think about those things that we've committed against God and our neighbor, the things that we've done or that we've not done. And I remember, that maybe this is silly, but I remember, you know, these, these things flooding my mind during confession and just thinking, is, does the priest somehow know what's going on in my heart right now? Like, is the Holy Spirit taking these private confessions and bring, whispering them into the ears of the priest? None of you are laughing right now, so that's really scary to me that maybe you, maybe you think that's actually happening too. Good news, that's not happening, uh, I promise. <laughs> I don't think so. But I had this fear that maybe after the service, the pastor was going to come up to me and be like, hey, God told me that you're a little sinner, you know, and like sort of had this conversation. It, that would be a biblical truth, of course. We are, we are little sinners. But over time, you know, what was initially uh, anxiety producing in me and embarrassing was something that became a healing balm. Because I knew that God could hear this, that God could take this, that God would receive this. You know, no, the, the pastor doesn't get a, a sin report from the Holy Spirit, Because God knows every hair that is on your head. He sees into the heart of every man and woman, and he loves you, and he died for you. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, he covered them with the skins of animals. Likewise, God covers us in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, because he wants our souls to be healed. So as James is concluding his letter... He reminds us still that there is pastoral work to do for all of us. He says in verse 19, My brothers, which also includes sisters, my brothers and sisters, if anyone is among you, wanders from the truth. And then if someone brings him back, his soul will be saved from death and he'll cover a multitude of sins. Notice this is not a task reserved only for the elders of the church but this is something that all of us are invited into. All of us, as a priesthood of all believers, are to keep our eyes in open for those who are wandering from the truth, those who we, sought, who we ought to reconcile back into the community. We are to be looking for those lost sheep. And to see someone who's actually wandering off into a dangerous direction, it's a tragedy for us to ignore that, right? And our friends who wander, they might not want to come back. They might not want to discuss matters of truth. And it's hard work having those conversations. But the scriptures tell us that we must engage in a prayer-filled, gracious effort to bring back our brothers and sisters. Just as we pray for wholeness of our own bodies and our own souls, so we must strive for wholeness among the corporate body of Christ as well. N.T. Wright says that that when a a, a wanderer is brought back into the fold, he says that a bit of heaven breaks into our world. And the scriptures tell us there, we see that new life springs up from death, is what the passage says. Sins are covered over. Sins are covered over. What does that mean, that sins are are covered over? In the Old Testament, uh, when Noah built the ark... He was instructed to cover the ark, to cover it with pitch, this black tar. And you wouldn't be able to see the wood of the ark because the pitch had covered all of it. And what that was supposed to do is it was supposed to to protect the wood of the ark from the raging, turbulent waters of the storm going on around. And then all throughout the Old Testament, that same word is used to cover up. That same word is used to describe what God does with our sin, He covers it up. He covers up the sorrows that plague us, the guilt that consumes us, the sins that wound us. He covers it up so that we are protected from the turbulent waters of this world. But there's more than just sweeping sin under the carpet. There's also atonement that happens here. There's payment which happens here. So if you go to lunch with a friend And the bill comes, and your friend puts her hand on the bill, and she pulls it to herself, and she says, don't worry about it. I'll cover this. What they're saying is that they are going to offer a sufficient payment for that juicy sandwich that you just ate. (laughs) And what they're saying is, you now owe nothing. Well, friends, by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice, your sins are not just covered up, but they're also atoned for. You owe nothing on your sin. And God wants all of us then to be proclaimers of this glorious truth so that we can all partake in the act of bringing healing to our community. Should we be surprised by any of this? Should we be surprised that James, especially the younger brother of Jesus Christ himself, that James concludes his letter by talking about these things? because James saw this in his brother Jesus face to face. He saw Jesus embodying new life, embodying forgiveness day in and day out. He saw this. And then ultimately upon the cross, Jesus covered over all the death and the sin and the pain of our entire world, and from his side flowed out blood and water, symbolizing the new life, and the forgiveness, the washing of sins that we all get to experience, and the way of healing that we get to partake in. Which, by the way, someone was asking me, why is it every Sunday we, we pour water into our wine? It is to symbolize the two elements coming from the side of Christ, the two sacraments uh, of that moment being gifted, poured out upon the church, represented by Mary and John uh, there. And so, may you be reminded of that today, the the washing of water and also the the new life that is um, symbolized by that wine as well. One final thought. So, James gives us an example here in this passage of what this new life, this prayer-filled life looks like. He says back in verse 17, he says, he tells us about Elijah, and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, a nature like ours, who did mighty things. And if we were to go back and read through 1 Kings 17 and 18, we would see that Elijah, he could rise to these glorious heights of faith and commitment, but then he would so quickly fall into despair and depression. He could be super brave and resolute as he battled against uh, the prophets of Baal and called down fire. But then he would also run for his life when danger came his way. He could be super compassionate to others, But then he would also be filled with self-pity and shame. In other words, Elijah was an ordinary dude, just like us. (laughs) Just like us, right? But he was also right with God. He loved God. And what we see in the story of Elijah is that when a human being prayed, God acted. God acted. You see, friends, by God's grace, we have been brought into the realm of powerful and effective prayer. Now, if all of this sounds strange to you and weird to you, I invite you to come, to participate with us, to be a part of this community of faith together. Because, friends, this is a place where we proclaim God's forgiveness boldly. This is a place where we experience his peace. And, in fact, in a few minutes, we're going to be speaking words of peace over one another and also, we are, all, we are called and equipped and sent out with the purposes of God. You see, this is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. So may you come and be a part of this together. And may we all be healed and in body and in soul and in community with one another. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.